If you would, uh, take a copy of God's Word and open it to Luke chapter 19. If uh, you're using the Pew Bible, it will be page 878. As you're turning there, or uh, pulling out your phone perhaps, I, I just give you a quick little story. I was watching all four of my children last Monday night because Elizabeth was at a meeting here at the church, and when she got back, my two oldest girls, because they're the only ones that are awake, are like, Mommy, what were you doing at church? She's like, I have a meeting. What was the meeting about? Long and short of it, we're talking about how, how can we do a better job at doing church? And my 10-year-old and 8-year-old like, well, I have some ideas. And I was, I was all ears. Lo and behold, every single thing they said had to do with sermons. And so I'll give you an 8-year-old and 10-year-old's perspective on how to preach a good sermon. First of all, don't be boring. Uh, boring means people won't come back to your church or they might get up and leave. Also, don't be too long. Long sermons are boring, so if you do that, they're not going to like it. Also, if you're going to preach a sermon, you need to have something in there that's funny. And if you're not funny, you better have good stories. It's okay to be long if you have good stories or you're funny. But if you don't have those elements, it's not going to be good. You're going to be boring. And last of all, uh, I thought we were done, and then Abby, my 8-year-old, goes, and no yelling. I was like... And Elizabeth asked, well, who's yelling? And she goes, you, Daddy. I was like, I barely preach here. And I, she's like, the last time you preached, you were like, do you get this? And I was like, I did do that. You're right. So, touche. And so, as I said in the first service, hopefully here is not too embarrassing my daughters or boring you. So let's read God's word here, chapter 19 of Luke. We're going to read the first 10 verses. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And, I ha- and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let us pray. Lord, as we have just read your word, we pray that you would add your blessing to your word, that we might now hear from you, that we might see and behold Jesus Christ and be changed into his likeness. We ask this in his name. Amen. Regardless of who you are, you all probably have that one person in your life. You know, the one person who when you are the most stubborn, can get through to you. Or when you probably have done something wrong and someone needs to call you out, this is the one person who can actually probably say something to you and you not get really defensive. Better yet, what this person does more than anything is they're able to talk to you, and maybe unlike other people, when you hear them, you actually stop and you think and you consider change. In fact... Hearing it from them makes you want to change because you feel the gravity 
of what is being said. We all have that person. Maybe that person's in this room. But as believers, we all share one person like that in common, and it's Jesus himself. And the way he speaks to us is through his word. And what he really does want to do is to engage us. He wants to speak and make us stop and think and really truly meditate on what is going on, to internalize this, to pause and consider how we might need to be different, how we might need to change. And if you think about any time you're reading the Bible or in a Bible study or even listening to a sermon, we always run a very great danger. And that is we would sit here and not do what we just talked about, to actually hear, engage, and internalize. We run the danger of hearing God's Word taught or reading God's Word and the result being that we just learn some more stories or we learn some interesting history or I, I, I learned something I never knew before or I learned something really good for another person. But what we really need to do is be challenged to see ourselves in the scriptures. And today that is going to be a big challenge because as we look at the scriptures we, today in Luke chapter 19, we're going to come face to face with an idol that we communally would not like to talk about. We'd be better off ignoring it. In fact, a lot of times, we just kind of all agree not to talk about it. We all kind of agree to ignore it. And we don't want to come to grips with it. But this idol is greed. It is the love of money. You know that America is the richest nation in the history of the world. Currently, right now. And it has been. Did you also know that only 2% of Americans consider themselves to be well-off or wealthy? You start doing the math on that, you realize something. Most of us don't think we have an issue with loving some money. Think about how many people we would consider wealthy, more than 2%. But we as a country don't have any problem with a love of money. But the ironic thing is if you ask that same population... Do you think that money can make you happy? They would all say, no, money can't buy you happiness. They will admit that money can make you comfortable, but it does fall short of making you happy. Uh, the comedian George Garland, George Carlin says, trying to be happy by accumulating possessions is like trying to satisfy hunger by taping sandwiches all over your body. So if you think about that, it's like, I'm hungry, let me tape a sandwich to myself. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't get to the problem that's on the inside. But the same thing goes for us with the idolatry that revolves around money, or what we would call greed. Adding money to your bank account, or getting more possessions, more new things, getting another vacation home, it's all taking sandwiches to yourself, if that's what you're looking for to make you happy, if you think that will make you secure. Now, I'm only 38 years old, but I think I've been try to count this up. I think I've been doing ministry in some form or fashion for about 15 years of my life. And I've been in small groups, discipleship groups, large groups, church settings, talk to people one-on-one, and I've heard lots of crazy things. And uh, as a pastor, you hear a lot of things. But you know what I've never heard in 15 years of doing this, or the 19 years now of being a Christian? I've actually never had someone confess or admit, I'm greedy. And, and I know my friends. It's not because they're great. <laughs> no offense if you're my friend. Uh, it's not because we're perfect. But it's because something's just not on our radar. And I think 
And that's a big reason why Jesus says just seven chapters before this, because very few of us are talking about this or admitting it or saying this is a problem. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 to watch out, to be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And the reason he says that is because we're blind to it. We're the richest nation in the history of the world, and we don't even consider extravagance when it com- in our, our culture, even in our own lives, in, in light of God's word. Greed isn't even a topic, and we can be wrapped up in it and not even know it. And I think this is the great wickedness of this little idol. It's its deceptiveness. We can all admit greed is bad, and yet find ourselves engulfed in it. It has its claws in us. And we don't even have an urgency to do something about it. That is, it is so deceptive, and I do think that's why Jesus says to watch out in Luke chapter 12. And I guess we kind of need to get personal a little bit. We talked about getting personal. Like The Bible needs to speak right into our lives. Consider this question. When was the last time you thought, I am saving too much, or I'm spending too much for my own benefit? Like, I'm just accumulating because I'm finding security in money. Or I'm just continuing to be selfish, overly so, for my, for my own gain. When was the last time you answered that question, or asked yourself that question, and then maybe more pointed, because I think we sometimes think about this, but when was the last time you actually made a tangible life change? I had to ask myself these questions, and I speak to you, as someone who all week has had to deal with the log in his own eye before talking to what I look out here is a lot of godly saints who might have a speck in theirs. But when was the last time we tangibly made a change when it comes to our love of money and casting maybe something out of our lives? Before we walk through this passage, the other question that kind of comes to mind is if we all agree that this is an issue or that greed is bad, that it's not good, why do we struggle with it so much? I can think of a lot of things that I can look at and you can look at and be like, that's bad. And I'm like, I'm not going to do it. And it's like, it might not even be hard. But with this one, we look at it, it's not good, and yet we struggle with it. So why is that? I think for a couple reasons, um, and we'll talk about these real quickly before we get into our passage. I think the first reason why we struggle with this so much is because we suffer from interstate convictions. And you know what I mean if you've ever driven on the interstate on, you know, going from Macon to Atlanta. You go with the pace of traffic. If they're stretching it to 15 miles an hour over the speed limit, you're like, oh, I don't, I don't normally do this, but all right, here we go. Like, I'm not going to get in trouble if everyone else is doing this. But the other thing is, is everyone's going super slow, you know, the tractor trailer that takes 15 minutes to pass the other tractor trailer, like you're just stuck behind there and you can't do anything, right? We have these convictions. When we come to think about money or our greed, it really doesn't shock us at all because all we're doing is we're looking around us and we're going with the flow. Uh, If you guys the opposite of this, if you guys remember Alabama's song, Song of the South, uh, some of you do, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but there's a line in there talking about this time during the Great Depression, it said, someone told us Wall Street fell, but we were so poor that we couldn't tell. Uh, Maybe we're so greedy (laughs) that 
we can't tell because we're surrounded by a culture, maybe our friend circles, or maybe just we're unaware. But we're unaware. We can't tell what is going on around us. But what if the norm changed? What if all of a sudden you were driving and everybody was going the speed limit and you just blew right past everyone? You would stand out. You would immediately be like, oh man, I'm doing something wrong. You see a cop, you're like, I'm really doing something wrong. I think that's part of our problem is that we have this interstate conviction. The other one, the second problem is this, that even if we do notice, like, I am going too fast. I, I, I do have a problem with the love of more. When we do realize that, we have a backup plan. And that is, we have an extraordinary ability to justify ourselves, to justify why we need more. We, I'm not very creative, but I can get really creative selfishly. I, I, can, I, can come, I can tell my wife all kinds of reasons why I may need something. But this is what we do. There are almost any reason we'll do sometimes. And if none of that works, we can always find someone worse. So I'll just point to that person. Or I'll point to some other low-hanging fruit of apparent godliness in my life. No matter what you think, whether it's interstate convictions or our ability to justify ourselves, this is the fundamental issue, is that we don't actually always think biblically when it comes to money, especially the love of money or possessions. Because what really matters has nothing to do with what other people around you are doing. The way other people spend money, the way other people love money, the way other people accumulate possessions has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has every, every, all of that has to do with what the Scripture teaches. And to really harness that in takes a lot of spiritual maturity. To really live by that conviction is very difficult. And I do, again, I think that this is the main reason Jesus warns us so much. Because he knows that there is latent danger here. One, because we already talked about it is deceptive. You're engulfed in it, and you don't even know it. The other thing, too, is the reason Jesus makes a big deal of it is because it can harm us. It can take over our life and do harm to us. It can take things from us. And it can also cause people to not trust in him because it gets them to put their trust in what money might be able to provide. Our passage here today is about Zacchaeus, and it shows us a man whose idol was money. He was greedy, and we see how greed destroys his life. But we also see in this passage how the grace of God can come and undo all of that, release him from that trap, and actually set him free to joy. So we'll look at this kind of in three quick ways. One, we're going to look at this shocking man. We're going to look at this shocking scene, and then a shocking response. Let's start with this shocking man. You see here in verse 1 and 2, this is not a person you would think would star in a Bible story. But if you look at 1 and 2, you see he's from Jericho. His name is Zacchaeus, and he is a chief tax collector, and he's rich. One thing you should know is Jericho is probably the wealthiest city at this time in Israel. And in Jericho, he's considered rich. He's considered rich amongst tax collectors. And that's because he's the chief tax collector. He's better at ripping people off than anybody else around. 
Also, if you were to call someone a tax collector, that in, in itself would be just a way that you could insult someone. It is not a term of endearment because tax collectors were traitors. They partnered with the Roman oppressors to get money out of their own people. They were able to exercise taxes on people plus whatever they could get. And you know what they did? They used the Roman military to help them do it. So they would live richly while putting their neighbor into the poorhouse, literally. And they would do this repeatedly, person to person, year after year. And he's the chief tax collector. He's in charge of the entire operation, the entire scheme. This is one hated man, but he is also extremely wealthy. As I sat and I studied this passage this week, I was thinking, why would someone take this job? You know you're going to be hated. Why would you do this? Well, the answer is just right there in front of you, isn't it? For money and possessions. This is the single greatest incentive the Roman Empire could possibly offer. It was irresistible. The money and possessions, it promises happiness, it promises comfort, and all you have to do is betray your family, your country, and take on this position where people will dislike you. If you think about it, Zacchaeus had given up everything to follow money. He'd given up everything for money. Now, it sounds bad when you say that. It's like, that's what we're supposed to do for Jesus. But he really had given up everything for money. And that sounds like a really bad character. But if you just pause for two seconds, you can look around you, maybe in your workplace, your neighborhood, and see that people who have made many a compromise for gain. Many a compromise. And we keep saying that Zacchaeus was greedy. What do I mean by that? Uh, To be greedy, I think, is to have a life-governing love of money or to have a life-governing anxiety over money. Uh, You don't have to be rich to be greedy. You can be extremely poor and be greedy. You can have a love of money based out of poverty. You can be a saver and be greedy. You can be a big spender and be greedy. The fact is, is we all fall into this at some point somehow. We all suffer from this, and again, that's why I think Jesus says to watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because there's not just one kind of greed. You can be greedy for more things than money or possessions. Here we're talking about money, but we all can do this, and in many ways. Greed, if you think about this character we're talking about, made Zacchaeus into someone he didn't want to be, and it made him do things he would never have wanted to do. And that can happen to us. Name your idol. Consider greed. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps you're not home as much as you should be because you're out working to accumulate wealth. You're missing time in the home because you need money to pay for that membership or for a certain luxury certain things, or maybe it's the security that 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 bank account can provide you. Maybe you're not missing time at home. Maybe you're on the other end. Maybe you're the person who is pushing for the things who needs to have. I think we might find ourselves on both sides of that spectrum, but I do think no matter what, it's paramount that we're honest with ourselves right here. At some level, We all come by this naturally, and it affects all of us. And we need to admit, at least, that we're playing with fire. 
Like, this is dangerous. This, this idol can get its claws into us, and it'll do what other idols do. It will control us. And its only goal is to take things from you, to harm you, to pull you away from Christ. And so, as we look at this, we need to be warned. It's what happened to Zacchaeus, and we'll see this in our next section. If you look at verses 3 through 7, this is a shocking scene. This really is the last thing most people would have thought would happen. Zacchaeus is a man who's beat up by his sin. And as we read this passage, you see Jesus is walking through the streets of Jericho, and he sees Zacchaeus, he says, come down, we need to hang out. In fact, Jesus invites himself over to his house. And what's going to happen there is they're going to have a meal together. And well, if, if you don't know, you see it here, but Zacchaeus is famously short, right? Like, if there's any, name the stature besides Goliath in the Bible of anyone you know. It's Zacchaeus. He's short. We know that, right? But I don't think that's why he finds himself in a tree. You do remember, he's the most hated man in his community. Jesus is coming through. There's a crowd. You think they're going to allow him in there? No. He's outcast from them. He might be able to exhort taxes from them, but he cannot get in this crowd. And because he's been pushed way to the back, he can't see. That is true. So what's he do? He goes and he climbs a tree. Which in itself, if you don't know, is completely undignified for a Jewish man to do at this time. That is not something they do. It's humiliating. And if the crowd already didn't talk bad about him enough, now they're really going to. And he knew that. So why in the world does he climb a tree to get in the path of Jesus? Because he wants to see Jesus. In fact, he needs to see Jesus. Because he's desperate. Because you know what he had learned? That money, greed, this idol, did not deliver on its promise. He's broken. He's empty. He's unsatisfied, and he's desperate for, for help. And you know what? He finds himself in a tree, humbled before men and before God, in need of help. And now this is a challenging moment for us as we read this text and consider it, because we have to ask ourselves, are we desperate enough when it comes to our idols? Are we humbled like that? Are we ready to come clean, to admit our need to renounce those idols, even to let other people in on it? Or even, like, do I actually desire holiness that much? You know, Zacchaeus was embarrassing himself because he knew he needed deliverance. Are we willing to do that? Zacchaeus is a traitor and a thief. He's been brought low by the bankruptcy of greed, but he's big enough to admit his idolatry, to quit with the charade of thinking, keep chasing this idol, it will work. He stopped, and he's looking for deliverance, and he's looking for freedom from this counterfeit. Now, Jesus, he saw the man. He saw what is a disrespected man in a tree. And everyone around him would have been good, good people, and they would have been very flattering to him. But yet he chooses that guy out of a tree. And the crowd gets mad at him. He's like, what are you doing? Don't you know what you're doing? And Jesus says, in fact, I do know what I'm doing, and I'm doing this on purpose. In fact, you can look at verse 10. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, I came for that guy. I came for people like that. Now, Jesus is showing Zacchaeus grace, and the crowd is mad at him for doing it. But you know who else this grace isn't lost on? It's not lost on Zacchaeus. 
He knows who he is. He knows what he's done. He knows he's in trouble. But you know what he does when he's shown grace? Probably what other people do when you show them grace. He eats it up. And he cherishes it. And it moves him. We said earlier that this word, again, the word needs to be our friend. It needs to be able to speak into our lives and put its finger on things. I think two things here we must be internalizing. The first is this. We must admit, we're like Zacchaeus. You may not want to say that. Like that guy? I would say, yeah, we're in need of the grace of God. We're broken. We're idolaters. I think we could probably all at some level say, get on board with the saying, I'm greedy. We're not the pretty people we present ourselves to be. We look pretty on the outside, but we're not, we're not that pretty. We need courage to admit that we're not, that we need help, and that we need to change. So that's the first thing we must internalize, is that we're like the keys. The other thing is, we need to note that Jesus was really gentle with this man. This is a man that no one liked. This was a person deeply entangled in sin, systematic sin. And yet, Jesus was gentle with him. I think the lesson here is that we need to be like Jesus. When we come in contact with people who are entangled with sin, even bad sin, or have or glaring idolatries such as greed, we need to be gentle with them. We need to show grace. Because you know what changes people is grace. Browbeating them and lecturing them how bad they are never changes someone. Grace and truth changes people. That's what we need. Bob Goff, who is a Christian author, he says this, I want to catch people on the bounce. I want to run towards them when everyone else is running away. I want to run towards them when everyone else is running away. Think about Zacchaeus. Everyone's running away. Think about if people really knew us. If they got to really know the real you. What about your friends? What about other people? If When we are at our worst, or in or like in our worst failure, if that is when we move towards people, how radical would that be? If we show people grace then. You know what would happen? You know what our reputation as a church would be like if that was us? You know how attractive a church we would be to struggling people? Do you know how much more likely you would be and I would be to admit our sins to one another if we didn't have to be pretty and that this was an environment maybe where we felt safe saying those things? I, I, I think the time for looking pretty on the outside but hiding these things on the inside, like we can say it's over. Like we don't need this anymore. We're broken people and we need each other. This is the design of the church. That's what we're here for. The environment we create as a church will either promote honesty about our struggles or it will deter honesty about our struggles. If you ever talk to someone who finally comes out of a long pattern of sin, they have been tormented sometimes for years by it. If only they could have been delivered before. See, Achaeus has been tormented we can do this in our small groups, our Sunday schools, as our church. We need to be a place for broken people. 
Jesus was safe for broken people. Jesus was a safe person for broken people. But you know what was not safe in Jesus' presence? Brokenness. Jesus was safe for broken people, but the brokenness wasn't safe with him. In fact, Jesus was all about the ministry of helping idolaters be set free. That's the kind of church we are. That's the kind of family we can have. That's the kind of friend group we can have. That's the kind of Bible study we can have. We can, you know how much it would help us? Just personally, you and me personally, if this was the environment in which we lived in. You know how much, how attractive we would, you know how many people would be one to Christ because they could come here, be embraced, see vulnerable people, but at the same time know that without compromise, what God says goes. And that you can be restored to right fellowship with him. That's what Jesus does for Zacchaeus. That's what we can do for one another. That's what we can do for people who, who right now don't even care about what Jesus thinks. Now the last thing is this shocking response. We're not used to people actually changing. In fact, a lot of times when people change, we're not, we're like, I can't believe that actually happened. Well, real change happens right here. And you see it in Zacchaeus' attitude. One, he starts calling Jesus Lord, and later Jesus says salvation has come to his home. But he has a heart, an attitude, that actually wants to please God and be about the things God is about. That's the most shocking thing you see right here. And because that is true, he makes two vows. The first thing he says is, 50% of what I have, not like 50% of my income now, I'll give back. No, he's like, of everything I currently have, 50% of it gone, I'm giving it to the poor. And then he says, anyone I've defrauded, four times back to them. The law would have required 20%. He's doing 400%. Why in the world would he do that? Because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to do things like God's doing. Like right now, what is God's mission? What is God's agenda? That's what I want to do. I want to be right with him. The other thing you've got to realize is, you know what? He became new, because we fast forward in the story. Something happens. He gets to the house and things happen. But the one thing that we see here is, he's a changed man and he sees his sin. He's willing to call his sin, sin. And he says, I defrauded people. And now I'm going to be about making things right. Well, you know what? You don't even have to defraud someone to make it right. You do know that we can set things right for people that others defrauded. That's what Jesus is doing for this guy, isn't he? Jesus didn't defraud this guy, but he gives him life to the full. We can be the hands and feet of Jesus like that. There's a lot more to say, but we need to stop. And I want to just say this because I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees here. The main takeaway from this passage should be that we understand that the power of an idol, even greed, can only be overcome by a greater and better master. Jesus is the only one who can actually deliver on the promises an idol makes. An idol promises life, and they never deliver. Jesus can actually deliver that. And the other thing that Jesus can do is he can actually deliver you from the idol's grip. So, Jesus is the solution. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, you don't have a relationship with Christ, and you know, like, I'm in, the, I'm in the midst of it. I'm in, like, what you're talking about, like, I am in need. Well, Jesus is there. You can run to him, and you can follow him, and he will give life to the full. If you're here today as a believer, 
and you know that you have an issue with greed, or maybe it's another idol. We need to kill that sin, and we need to kill it together. I think it starts by answering a question, why am I greedy, or why am I anxious about money? The answer to that question is a good start, and Tim Keller talks about that being kind of the first step in getting to the solution, which is identifying the root idol or the idol behind the idol. Because there is a reason we do those things. There's something we're looking for. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's social acceptance. But there is something driving it. And that's what we have to get to. And at at that point, Keller finishes that thought by when he's talking about greed. Greed or any idol can't be removed. It can only be replaced. It must be supplanted with a greater love for the one who, though rich, became poor so that we might become truly rich. We're about to come to the table to take communion, and this is a great place for us to remember that Christ is greater, and he proved it. He proved it in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. And the table is a great place for us to come and to draw on the grace of Christ that is available to us so that we might walk in godliness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now, Lord, we, we recognize our great need for you. We recognize that in some ways, Lord, we are just, we have clearly fallen short. But Jesus, you have fulfilled the law and you lived a perfect life on our behalf. We pray that we would trust in that. And Father, we pray that you would help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That, Lord, we would find our all in all in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.